Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. So good to see you all today. I uh, hope you had a great summer. And uh, <clears throat> glad you're here. My name's Pete, and I'm one of the pastors. And uh, before we dive into our message this morning, I want to take just a moment, give you kind of a quick uh, personal update. Nothing too crazy. You don't need to worry. But uh, I wasn't here the past two Sundays. I was actually in the lovely little town of Holland, Michigan. And uh, if you've never been to Holland, Michigan, which I hadn't, they are very into being Dutch. Uh, tulips and wooden shoes and terrible food, the whole thing. And uh, here's why I was in Holland, Michigan. Um, this last year and a half or so, I think we could all agree it's been rough. It's been rough on our world, rough on our country, rough on our state, our city. It's been rough on our church. It's been rough on many of you, and uh, it's been rough on me. And um, as a pastor, um, I would say that pretty much every pastor I know would say this has been by far the most challenging uh, season of ministry that they have ever endured. If it starts raining, we're just going to keep going. So if you're wondering... Um, I read an article recently that starts like this. He says, if you ministered in 2020, tell me if this sounds familiar. You go into one meeting hearing you're too conservative and into another hearing you're too liberal. Someone calls you a coward if you want folks to wear masks in your services, while another says you hate your neighbor if you don't. Some think you're abandoning the gospel for addressing race issues too much, and others think you don't address them enough. These are dizzying experiences, and being stuck in the middle of competing expectations can bring on feelings of despair. And I read that, and I'm like, oh man, that's it. And this is what uh, much of this past year or so has, has been like for me and for most pastors. Uh, in fact, one recent study I found said that over 70% of pastors in the United States are currently looking for other work. And uh, I, myself, know quite a few pastor friends who have left their church or left the ministry altogether um, in this past year. We do have umbrellas that are making their way around, so feel free to grab one of those. Um, all that to say, here's what I want to say to you today. Even though it has been a rough year, um, for me personally, things have actually gone the other way. And that even in the midst of all the conflict and division and frustration and loss, one of the things that's happened in me is that I've experienced what you might call a renewed sense of calling or a confirmation of my vocation. And uh, I'm coming out of this season, uh, anticipating we are coming out of a season, um, hoping to do this work for the rest of my life. And not just pastoral ministry in general, but here. Uh, if God allows, I want to be your pastor for the next 30 years. And so, <laughs> thank you. I was worried that might go the other way, but that's great. Um, 
So to that end, I started asking the question, how do I make sure that I'm continuing to lean into this calling? How do I continue to grow and learn and mature into the man and the minister that God's called me to be and that you guys deserve? And so a few months ago, I decided to apply for a doctoral program at Western Theological Seminary in, you guessed it, Holland, Michigan. And um, here's the crazy part. I applied and I got in which if you don't believe in miracles, maybe this will change your mind. Um, Because I don't actually have an undergrad. You may not (laughs) know that, um, but usually before you do doctoral work, they like you to go to college. I spent my college years playing punk rock and driving kids on mission trips to Mexico. And so when people find out I'm a Beaver fan, they always ask, oh, did you go to Oregon State? And my answer is sometimes, Um, but not quite enough to get one of those degrees. So uh, I do have a master's in theology from Multnomah, and uh, now I'm working on this doctorate from Western. And so it's a doctorate of ministry, not a PhD, but a D-min, not a demon. Uh, A D-min is what I'm looking for. And uh, I started last week. And so for the next three years, I'll be traveling to Holland or various places a couple times a year. And uh, then the rest of the time, I'll be researching, reading, and writing um, on my own. And the cool thing is that rather than taking my time and attention away from this place, from this congregation, from this work. The idea um, is that this program will help me move deeper into it and become a pastor who's more present to God and uh, present to you. So that's just my personal update, and uh, I was excited to share that with you. And uh, thank you, thank you. The lectionary reading this morning that we're looking at comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. It's printed in your bulletin, or you can find it in your Bible. And uh, we're specifically going to focus in on verses 16 through 18 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. So, uh, since we're dropping in to the middle of a book of the Bible, let me quickly give us a little bit of context. Um, 2 Corinthians is an epistle, also known as a pastoral letter. And so it was written by the Apostle Paul to a early congregation of Christians in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. And um, we know that Paul wrote lots of letters to what we would call ancient Near Eastern churches, to early Christian communities. We have 13 of Paul's letters in our Bible. Um, But what you need to know about the letter we call 2 Corinthians is that this is um, Paul's most personal letter. He's really open with his readers about what he's been through and what it's felt like. And he uses a lot of um, emotional and even vulnerable language as he writes to this congregation describing um, what it feels like to be him, which you don't get nearly as much of in most of Paul's other writings. And so this is an interesting piece of literature we have in front of us. And in the end, there's obviously a lot going on in this letter, but I would argue that Paul's ultimate purpose in 2 Corinthians is to assure this church, this community of Christians, of his love for them and his commitment to them. And so that's really what he's doing in general. And in this passage specifically, in chapter 4 and 5, from what we can gather, here's what's going on. A whole bunch of people in this Corinthian church have begun to question whether or not Paul was actually a leader they wanted to follow. 
See, early on, Paul had been the one that had brought the gospel of Jesus to them. And early on, they had really appreciated his life and his teaching. But now, they're not so sure. And apparently, what's happened is that these other kind of more impressive spiritual leaders have come along. Uh, Paul calls them super apostles, or what we might call celebrity pastors. And these people come into town, and the people in the church look at them, and then they look at Paul, and Paul doesn't seem that impressive after all. And so a bunch of the Corinthian Christians have begun to kind of disregard Paul and have found someone else that they're going to follow. And so Paul's basically writing this letter to say, yeah, I know I'm not that impressive, especially compared to all these super apostles. But my job isn't to be impressive. My job is to point to the one who is. And so Paul basically is defending himself to these Corinthians, not by appealing to his own pedigree or performance, but by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. The same gospel that made him an apostle in the first place and the gospel that gave birth to this Corinthian church. And so in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's going, so why should you listen to me? He says, here's why, because I know that the one who raised Jesus, raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you to himself. Paul goes, here's why you should listen to me, because this is the gospel that I proclaim, not a gospel of Paul, but a gospel of Christ. And so rather than depicting himself as a rock star pastor, he depicts himself as a slave, a slave to Christ. Or in other words, he's saying to his congregation, I will always be your servant, but you will never be my master. I work for the one and only true God. And then he goes on to deal with one of the key issues that it seems people have with him here. And it has to do with really the reality of suffering. And it's not so much Paul's theology of suffering that it appears people disagree with, but it's the reality that it seems like Paul himself is always suffering. And they're basically going, we're not sure we want to follow a guy who, when we look at your life, it's like there's an inordinate number of things that tend to go wrong. They're watching Paul and going, really? This is the guy we want to follow? In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul himself gives a rundown of some of the things that he's been through over the last several years as a minister, minister of the gospel. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, listen, he goes, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. I mean, I love it. He lists all this terrible stuff that he's been through being shipwrecked in stones. And he's like, and worst of all, I have to be a pastor. This is an impressive list. And his readers are looking at this and going, okay, this is like the spiritual teacher, the pastor that we are choosing to follow. Like lots of people sail across the Mediterranean. Most of them never get shipwrecked, even once. Paul's been shipwrecked three times. One of my favorite movies as a kid was Pure Luck with Martin Short. You remember he's this accident-prone guy, everything always goes wrong. One, he was struck by lightning twice, once, by, once when he was sitting in a movie theater. Right? This kind of feels like a Paul situation. And the Corinthians are looking at this guy in his mess of a life, and they're asking a very serious question. How can God be with someone who's had so many things go wrong for them? Or like, if Paul was really following Jesus, then shouldn't his life be going a little more smoothly? So it wasn't Paul's teaching about suffering, but it was Paul's suffering itself that was causing this congregation, whether they wanted to listen to his teaching or not. And so if you think about maybe other places in the Bible that deal with the question of suffering, this is somewhat of a recurring question. Like in the story of Job, when everything goes wrong for him, he loses everything. All of his family, all of his property, all of his wealth, his friends come to him and they say, Job, do you think if God was really with you, that wouldn't your life be going better than this? And that's essentially the question that Paul is responding to. So what's his answer? His answer in verse 16 is, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So I love how he gives us this list of shipwrecks and being stoned and being imprisoned and being starving. And he sums all that up by saying, yeah, I've had some light and momentary troubles. But listen to what he's saying. Paul says that his sufferings in life are not a sign that he's denied the gospel, but rather they are a confirmation of the gospel. They're not a sign that God is far from him, but rather just the opposite, a sign that God is near. Which sounds like a crazy claim to make. But here's how he gets there. What is the gospel? What is the good news of the kingdom of God that's breaking into this world 
in Jesus. What is this gospel? Remember, he's already summarized it. In verse 14, the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. That is the story that he's banking his life on and basing his teachings on. The death and resurrection of the Son of God. It's a very simple story. Before Jesus can rise from the dead, he has to be dead. This is the way the gospel works. Death before resurrection. Pain before healing. Loss before redemption. Suffering before glory. Good Friday before Easter. Or in other words, if you think that a smooth and easy life is the sign that someone is walking closely with God, then you can forget about Jesus because his life was anything but smooth and easy. His life was full of pain and suffering. And so Paul is saying, if you're doubting me because I'm not healthy and wealthy and smart and successful, then he's saying, you don't understand the gospel. This is how the gospel works. Just like for Jesus, suffering and death lead to life. Redemption out of tragedy is the meaning of history. And it's this belief, this active, obedient trust that Paul has given himself to that allows him, in the midst of all the pain, all the suffering, all the rejection, all the people that are, have left his church, so to speak, to say, we don't lose heart. If we step into our world, into our moment today, there's a lot of reasons that people would lose heart. We know that over three and a half million people died from COVID around the world over the last year or so. But I'm 41, I'm uh, one of the world's oldest millennials. And for people my age and younger, the leading cause of death the last couple of years hasn't been COVID-19. And it hasn't been cancer, which is in a normal year, what would be at the top of the list? It wouldn't be heart disease. You know what the leading cause of death for my generation and younger has been in 2020 and 2021? Suicide. Death, death by self-harm. Some doctors are even using the word epidemic. The acceleration and the intensity of the suffering, the pain, the hopelessness in our world. People are in pain. And so when Paul says in verse uh, 16 that outwardly we're wasting away, He's not just talking about our bodies getting older and we're not as young as we used to be. He's talking about everything's falling apart. 
right? And that's what most of this year and a half has felt like, right? Everything's on fire. It's been the perfect storm. And at an international level, at a national level, politics and health and school and families are being ripped apart and churches are being ripped apart. Everything outwardly is wasting away. And we don't know what to do with it. And what's fascinating is that Paul's living and writing into a culture where suffering wasn't shocking to them. It's not something they enjoyed, but uh, they didn't live in a culture like ours where we're genuinely surprised by suffering, where we expect things to go well. But the realistic portrait that the Bible presents of life in this world is that suffering is inevitable. But Paul says that as a gospel people, as people whose lives find their stories within this grand narrative of the creation and the redemption and the restoration of this world, that we have this perspective, we have this hope that totally revolutionizes, revolutionizes the way that we see suffering and pain and loss. And here's the key. In just the last few minutes, verse 18, Paul goes, here's the key to not losing heart. Verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So how could Paul continue to faithfully serve God amidst all the rejection and persecution that he faces? How does he stay faithful? How does he keep from losing heart? And he says, here's the key. Fix your eyes on that which is unseen, which makes no sense. Like if he said, fix your mind on the things unseen, I could do that. Or fix your heart on the things unseen, I could do that. But when he says, fix your eyes on the things unseen, I'm going, that's literally impossible. Look at the things you can't see, church. Go do it. It makes no sense. So what's he talking about? Well, there'd be, it'd be a mistake, although many of us have this tendency to look at these two realities he describes, that which is seen and that which is unseen, and to think that which is seen has to do with this physical world, and that which is unseen has to do with the spiritual world. And so there's lots of versions of Christianity that say this physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. That is not a biblical view of reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Both the physical and the spiritual, it's all sacred. So that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something else. One of my favorite podcasts is called 99% Invisible. Any nerds? We got a couple, all right. It's a fascinating podcast. You may not like it. I love it. 
And it has to do with all the thought that goes into the things that we don't think about. Or in other words, all the unnoticed architecture and design and artistry and creativity that make up the world that we live in. And so one summary says it's really about the difference at 99% Invisible, episode after episode is really about the difference between what you see and what a designer sees. What you see and an architect sees. What you see and an engineer sees. Okay, so go here with me just for a minute. I have uh, two brothers and a sister. One of my brothers is a nuclear engineer. My other brother is a construction engineer. My sister is a hair engineer, I guess we would call that. Um, my brother, who's a construction engineer, it's so fascinating driving down the road with him because I'm looking around and just, you know, seeing <clears throat> whatever, roads and sidewalks and bridges and tunnels and buildings, and he's a guy who designs those things for a living. And so when I simply see a bridge, he's seeing the thought, the theory, the math, the creativity, the problem solving, the physics, the science, everything that went in to the creation of that bridge. So he is looking at the things that you can't see. Have you ever watched a movie with Kip? It's so fascinating because I'm like listening to the story and enjoying the dialogue and the narrative and that sort of thing. And Kip's like, how'd they do that camera shot? And I'm like, Kip, that's, that's the wrong question right now. You should, be. What's, what's he doing though? He's setting his eyes on the things unseen. He's setting his eyes on what is it that made this thing? What is it that brought this thing to life? What's the actual bigger story? He's learning and teaching me how to see things through the lens of a filmmaker, of a designer, of an architect, of a storyteller. So Paul goes, here's the secret. Don't set your eyes on what you can see or on what's obvious or what's right in front of you, namely, whatever it is that's causing your suffering today. It's like, yeah, it's there. Don't pretend it isn't. But set your eyes on the things unseen. What would it mean to look at this moment of suffering, pain, and loss that you're enduring in the present and look at it like an artist, like a creator, like a storyteller or an architect? Well, here's what's interesting. We know the storyteller. We know the architect. The architect of the cosmos, the heavens and the earth that we live in, and the architect of our very lives and faith. We know the one who is writing this story of our lives. And Paul's saying, here's what you do. Fix your eyes on that which you can't see. Meaning, in the most mundane disruptions of everyday life, going, I wonder if there's actually a bigger story being told here. I wonder if there's something more beautiful that could be going on beneath the scenes. Meaning, it's, if I'm stuck in traffic, the most important thing to me is to get to work on time. Maybe to Jesus, there's something more important he wants to do in the midst of that minor disruption. Maybe more than getting me to work on time, maybe Jesus wants me to become a patient person. 
And he's architected this little moment to allow that to happen. And we can take that from traffic all the way up to diagnoses, to destruction, to divorce, and to death. The uniqueness of Christian hope is that everything in this world, heavens and earth, will be renewed. And so, as followers of Jesus, we have this whole other vision of life that we live by. And the vision that we receive from Jesus himself is that the meaning of life is full of suffering, but we're not just trying to make it through it, but we are learning to embrace it as it has the potential to launch us to places we'd never be otherwise. So let me ask one question in closing. When you're suffering in the smallest regular ways or in the greatest extreme ways, what does it look like to turn to God in prayer? What are the prayers that Christ wants to form in us in the midst of life's pain? Many years ago, I latched on to this picture of Good Friday, Jesus' death being crucified on the cross. And the gospel writers tell us that on either side of Christ is a thief. Two guilty men getting what they deserve within the criminal justice system. And one of them is mocking Jesus and said, if you really are the son of God, then save yourself and us and take us down from here. And the other criminal says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Both of these criminals are facing incredible suffering and they both turn to Christ in the midst of it. And one of them says, take me down from here. Remove this suffering from my life and take things back to the way they used to be. Take me down from here. And the other one says, take me up from here. Use this pain and suffering to create in me a new person, to create in me a new experience of reality, a new life in your kingdom. One says, take this down, take it away, take things back to normal. And the other says, take me up closer to you, deeper into your life and your kingdom. Jesus hears both those prayers. But the prayer that he answers is the one who prays, take me up. The paradigm of reality, as told by the story of the gospel, is death and resurrection. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so he will one day raise us from the dead too. But he is also presently at work raising the dead in us.
So don't lose heart. Father God, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your son. And of course, we give you thanks for all that's good, for all that's fun, for all that's sweet and joyful and enjoyable. But God, we pray that you would also give us the faith that Paul had to turn to you even in the midst of the worst pain, suffering, discouragement, and loss. And to know that you want to meet us there. And you want to use whatever it is that we're experiencing to further form the life of your son within us. And so I pray that for myself. God, I pray that for this church that I love. Whatever hardships, pain, loss we're experiencing, would you use it not to take us down, not to take us back to where we were, but to take us up, to lead us onward, closer to you more and more like the people that you created and called us to be. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.